Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. I hope a coffee has lifted, uh, re-energized everyone. We are going to proceed with our day, and it is my great pleasure to introduce uh, the speakers for our first uh, roundtable this morning on Brazil and UK Dialogue on Social Development and Policies. I'm going to start by introducing uh, Her Excellency, Secretary of State for Social Development and Fight Against Hunger in Brazil, uh, Teresa Campelo. Uh, Teresa Campelo is part of the team uh, that has managed the transition of the first government of President Lula in Brazil, where she coordinated the working group that designated the Bolsa Familia program and was assistant chief, uh, deputy chief of coordination and monitoring of the civil office. She is an economist. She graduated from the Federal University of Berlandia and was a professor of economics at the University of Vale do Rio dos Sinos, Unicinos, in Rio Grande do Sul, uh, in Brazil. Between 89 and 93, She was part of the governments of Olivio Dutra and Raul Ponte in the south of Brazil, where she worked in the world-known program of participatory budgeting. And uh, in her current office, Teresa leads the coordination of Brazil Without Misery Plan, the Bolsa Familia program, and the national policies on social assistance and food and nutrition security. We also have with us Professor uh, Armando Barrientos, who is the director of the International Research Initiative on Brazil and Africa in the UK. Uh, Professor Barrientos is Professor and Research Director at the Brooks World Poverty Institute, as well as being a co-director of the Uh, research initiative on Brazil and Africa. Before joining BWPI in 2007, he was research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex and a senior lecturer in public economics and development at the Institute of Development Policy and Management at Manchester. He has acted as an advisor to the International Labor Organization, the World Bank, DFIG, Inter-American Development Bank, UNICEF, and the Caribbean Development Bank. And Dr. Paul Hanley, who is Head of Profession in Social Development at FIG UK, is with us this morning as well. Dr. Hanley is Head of Profession where he leads at DFIG, where he leads a diverse group of age professionals building organizations' technical capability in social issues. Previously, he has led the UK's engagement with the World Bank, managed DFID's growth policy theme, and worked in diverse places, such as Sudan, Somalia, and Brazil. And I can report he speaks fluent and perfect Portuguese. Uh, So it's a great pleasure to have our speakers at this table. And we are going to start, without any further ado, with Secretary of State Teresa Campelo. Teresa, please, the floor is yours. Good morning, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here. I think we are here for several reasons, and we want to exchange as well much of what we have achieved in Brazilian policies 
it happened because we were open to hear criticisms, suggestions, and also to learn together. Therefore, it's an opportunity to show social inclusion policies carried out in the last 12 years in Brazil and also to have an exchange. I want to thank very much for the opportunity to LSE thank the presence of Ambassador Roberto Jaguaribe and also the director of UNESCO, Bardav Dendev, and also thank Professor Sandra for her opportunity to be here. Sandra and I, we've known each other for a long time. Sorry, we've known each other for a short time, but we have several friends, over 20 years, common friends, so I'm very happy to be here with her. And I want to thank uh, Professor Armando Barrientos, Dr. Paul Healy as well, and I'm at your disposal for this exchange and dialogue. And also, I want to thank Marlo Violeto, who's representing UNESCO in Brazil. I also want to thank uh, UN agencies and UNESCO for this partnership. Much of what has been said in terms of public policies about Bolsa Família in the world is thanks to this partnership with UNESCO and other bodies, UN bodies. For us, is an opportunity to be able to share our efforts and also want to thank on behalf of the Brazilian government, our partner Macaé, who's the National Minister for Education, who's here with us, representing the Ministry of Education. Therefore, I want to thank everybody. Thank you for being here today. Our idea today is to present this trajectory of Brazil in the last 12 years. I'll talk a lot about what we have done, and I'll, then we can have questions at the end and also the challenges. Therefore, everything that we have done shows us that we can do even more. Every time we analyze our trajectory, our history, we are very proud of what we have been done. But also we know there's a lot to be done in Brazil. We have a very long journey to overcome 500 years of exclusion in Brazil, which is always being known for an unequal country in the world. And in 12 years, we cannot resolve all our problems, but we have been doing very much, and we have the hope and the energy to be able to do even more. It's a great honor to have this debate here at LSE. It's one of the places where the theoretical construction of the welfare state and the aim of Brazil is to create a welfare state. Many of our policies are known, but not the body of all the actions that we are trying to construct. I'm just going to talk a little bit about it, the ones directed for poor people, but we have been trying to build social university policies in health, in education, in social benefits as well, but we are not going to deal about that today. Poverty, 
hunger and inequality in Brazil, they fell significantly in the last 12 years. Bolsa Família was one of the main responsible programs for this re reduction in inequality, poverty, and hunger. But it was not the only one. It's the most well-known one, but maybe represents a third of what has been is responsible for one-third of this reduction. All the actions in Brazil are responsible for 70% of this reduction. And I'd like to talk about the body of all these programs because in Brazil, social agenda, it's more over a fight for social justice. It's more than an effort to deal with these liabilities that we have in the Brazilian population that was socially excluded. It's also part of a development model, an economic development model. We need to grow. We want to grow. And we don't believe that it's possible to grow without just a share of the population. We want to grow with everybody. And we only believe that we can grow sustainably if we count upon the majority and we hope that all of Brazilians, our development model, thinks about the social issue as a project for development. We don't want to think in economics separated, isolated to the social and to the environmental. So this agenda, the challenge for the world is to unite these three efforts. And this is what Brazil has been doing. In Brazil, we were able to reduce in the last period the unemployment rate. We have the lowest one in the history of Brazil. And it's also an imperative for the country to call upon the Brazilian adults that are included now in the market, they're working, so there's an effort in the social agenda for inclusion. But also he wants to guarantee that all Brazilians can and will grow with us, as I have mentioned. Therefore, we want them to participate. We want them to be qualified workers and also to be part of this internal market that we are creating in Brazil. So I'll very briefly going to talk about this model so we can know about our social agenda. So this first graph here shows the increase of the uh, income per capita growth in Brazil divided in quintiles. So you can see here, do you want to sit down? Please, do you want to sit down? So this is the income, the average income growth per capita for the quintiles. You can see the income of the poorest 20 percent, uh, the income of all Brazilians has grown, but the poorer 20 percent, their income has grown above the income of the richest 20 percent. So why we achieved this? So there's been several factors. I'll talk about three of them. The first of them is the growth, Sandra. So the first of them was an increase in minimum wage. It comes from a policy to increase the minimum wage. Now is following the productivity and is above inflation, the GDP. So with that, we were able to increase in real terms in 72% above inflation. 
The second issue is that we made an effort to increase the number of formal jobs. So we generated more than 21 new formal jobs in Brazil in the last 12 years, above from all the known uh, formal jobs. I'm just highlighting this because they are part of this network of social protection and these insurance protection. So they are better jobs, but apart from these ones, other jobs have been um, created as well in entrepreneurship as well. Therefore, and lastly, the third factor is the most well-known one, is uh, Bolsa Familia, the family benefit. It was created as an income transfer program, so families, they must have children in school, and also they should visit the doctor every six months. It was created based on three programs that were existing in public service in Brazil. Therefore, we didn't, in, we didn't create a new network. We were using the network of health, of education, and in the municipalities that were existing, and we were able to create rapidly this program, which reached millions of people in the first few years, and now it is benefiting 14 million families. So they are 50 million Brazilians. One-fourth of the Brazilian families, they receive Bolsa Familia, which complements income of poorer families. It doesn't replace the income it complements. Why? Because differently from what happens in several developed countries, in poor countries and in Brazil, this population works. They work a lot. They are poor, but they're not poor because they don't work. They are poor because they were not able to have the conditions in order with their work, their hard work, to be able to have an enough income to sustain with dignity their families. Therefore, Bolsa Familia doesn't replace work. On the other hand, this population works a lot much more than I do and you as well. So they work a lot and in any way they are not able to have a good income. So this effort we are making is to complement their income and not replace. So Bolsa Familia is very successful because it didn't force people to not stop working. And I just wanted to talk about three main aspects, three main features for the success of the program. So which one are these? Which are the successes of Bolsa Familia? The first one is because we have a record of families from a simple base, database. So we were able to record all these families. Uh, it's self-declared. It's organized by each municipality and it's avoided the need to create a new bureaucracy. And also we didn't have an increase in cost so it's cheap in implementing. The money is sent directly to the families through a debit card. I'll, I'll show you. I'm trying to find it. So they receive via this card. So the municipalities record them. And these resources are given directly to the family. So Brazil has a good banking system, very developed in Brazil, although it's a very large country. We are able for, to enable families to reach banks in all the Brazilian states. And therefore, we were able to guarantee 
to send this money in a cheap way to Brazilians without extra costs, and then they can receive efficiently without too much bureaucracy, without intermediaries, not only reducing costs, but also deviations. I defend very strongly that we should give resources to poor families and not this idea to give food and assets, this idea to to care of family population. They think that sometimes they don't, they can't spend their money. They are not going to spend wisely. So our experience has proven that the poor people, they know have how to spend the money very wisely. And in Bolsa Familia, I'm talking about the third secret, which is the technology, the social technology. It is the most efficient one, which is to provide the money to mothers. The best person to spend this money are mothers. So the mother receives this money because the number one priority is the son, the daughter, their children. So they spend on food, on school materials, medicine, and clothes for children. So it's very efficient, our social technology to ensure that mothers can look after their children. Sometimes they can use for other things, so this money from Bolsa Familia is not exclusively for food. Families, they are able to decide on what they want to spend, and this was a learning curve because we need to provide financial education to these families so they can manage their own resources, and we have proved that they've done that very wisely. Therefore, I want to emphasize the importance on how simple this program is, but not just to copy it, but when you think about public policies, this criteria to have simple programs is very essential. All the countries, they can opt to have more complex programs, more difficult programs, and but is only viable on a limited scale. So countries that don't have a large amount of poor people in Brazil, we have to resolve issues for millions of people. So they have to be very simple. We are not dealing with a pilot project. We have 50 million people participating. So only pilot projects, they do not sustain and help for our needs as an activist that helped us, a Brazilian activist, Betinho, who is hungry, is also uh, very afraid and also is in a hurry. So we cannot wait for in 10 years time, reach an, uh, an ideal model, so we have to reassure and have a scale in these programs. They can be replicated. They are very broad. They can reach everyone for them to be efficient. In Brazil, Bolsa Família had to work very well in the Amazon region and in Sao Paulo. It had to work in the coast and in the Interior, because it's a model that can be replicated in a, such a diverse country as Brazil. In the beginning, Bolsa Família was target of debates and criticism. We created in 2003, so we have 11 years today, in October. 
So it was heavily criticized, and now we have studies and research all over the world, certainly at LSE. Many people have studied Bolsa Familia, so we have scientific, solid evidence that is not only a marketing, but the results we have obtained in several areas in order to empower women, include people financially and in the banking system, and also we have published on last year when we were celebrating 10 years of Bolsa Familia, this book, I'm sorry, we only published in Portuguese, but we have an executive summary in English, and I know you have many people who are able to read and speak Portuguese, so it's an e-book you can download from the Internet, and an executive summary is also available on the Internet. And what was our aim with these 500 pages? Firstly, to deal with the myths about poverty, not only in Brazil, but in other countries. Therefore, in the book, we were able to deal with these myths. Firstly, that the poor is poor because they don't work. We have evidence, three studies at least, showing that poor people actually work a lot, but they didn't have opportunities, education, in order to have access to better opportunities and to continue to grow. And also there was the idea that if we gave Bolsa Familia, families would have more children to receive more money, which is a prejudice, is the worst prejudice about poverty in Brazil and in other places in the world. They give this opportunity. They, pro they say that poor have this opportunistic behavior. So, what motivates a human being to have children is money. I would ask. So, to any of you, how much would cost to you? How much I would have to pay you for someone to have an extra child? Because, of course, if rich people have put prices on children, so you are attributing a different behavior between rich and poor, so it's a deviation of behavior. And we can prove today that this hasn't happened in Brazil. On the contrary, we had a fertility rate decreasing in Brazil, and if it continues to decrease, we certainly won't be able to reproduce our qualified workforce to continue to grow in the next 15 years, and especially above poor people, and especially about, among, amongst poor black women and women who are receiving Bolsa Familia, which proves that that hasn't happened. And the third myth is that they wouldn't spend Ideally, and this myth we were able to demystify as well with several studies. But in the book, we are also dealing and showing the great results we have achieved. I'll show some of them. I don't want to talk exclusively about Bolsa Familia, but I want to talk about the main results we have achieved as fruit from our 12 years, 11 years of history of Bosa Familia. Firstly, we are going to talk about health and family health. We have to give conditions. So children have to be vaccinated and also do pre-antenatal care. With that, health, women's health have improved and Bosa Familia 
have 50% more of attendance in antenatal care than the non-beneficiaries. They also have better um, food intake. So we have reduced footing the rate of premature children. So babies are stronger. They are measured every six months by the healthcare system and they have to be vaccinated. So we have reached with all children in Bolsa Familia, they have been vaccinated. So it's very important to say that Bolsa Familia was very important to reduce mortality amongst children between zero and five years. So this is a very special and important result, especially diseases related to poverty. So this study was published in the Lancet publication in May. It has a very broad sample, so independent researchers worked cross-checking all data in health in Brazil. So it's two, more than 2 million children identified in this study, and it shows that this combination, health and Bolsa Familia, was responsible to reduce in 46% uh, the diarrhea rate of child mortality and 58% deaths by, by malnutrition. So we were able to deal directly with malnutrition in children, acute malnutrition, and now we are reducing chronic malnutrition, which reflects in the decrease of other issues as well. And also we have seen an increase in the physical and the intellectual development of children. Children who go through malnutrition are not only short, which is one of the indicators which we follow up, but this is only a sample of what happened to their whole bodies, a child doesn't grow and their brain doesn't develop well and this is what we have managed to change in Brazil. Brazil has come out of the hunger map by foul. During the Dilma and Lula governments we went from 10% of malnourished people and we reached 1.7 and we're very happy to be able to celebrate to get our exit of the hunger map and we can say that we always already have the first generation of children in Brazil who have not been subjected to hunger. We're very proud of this because to live with hunger is not to have a, the Brazil that we want to build. Having these children developing without hunger, having access to education and health means that we are building a new country and this is what we are talking about. We had a reduction of 82% in the number of malnourished people in Brazil. We talk about education now. It has also improved amongst our children and young people. I would like to uh, welcome our partnership and the integration, which is one of the actions we have been doing. And it's a legacy of our of a program which is to integrate a different number of policies and this is part of the secret of our management and how we've developed our social policies in Brazil. We had two very critical situations of poor children in Brazil. The 
the school attendance and the difference in year. We have managed to reach our main objective, which is to keep children and maintain them at school. It's almost 17 million children who are part of Bolsa Familia who are followed every month. We have 47 million children in Brazil, almost 50 million of those 17 million children have their attendance being followed up every monthly. It is within a system which is followed up nationally. And if this child starts missing school, the families are notified. We don't want to take the children away from the uh, program, but we want to notify them. And if this carries on, then the family benefit is suspended. The family is um, visited to find out why this is happening. And that is why we're having a very good outcome in Brazil. Bolsa Familia has contributed to ensure the poor children have the same level of frequency and performance of other children in the public school system. And Bolsa Familia has also contributed to reduce educational inequality in the country. Generally, when we look at education in Brazil, we're talking about indicators of uh, illiteracy, how many illiterate people are there in Brazil, but a huge proportion of Brazil who have low education are adults. Many of them are already elderly. So I would like to show a flow indicator. One of the most important is to know that young people, 15-year-olds who are now finishing primary school, are school and whether they are at the right level enough. And this is what we're looking at. And what we show in the lower curve, we see 20% of the children who are 15-year-olds who are part of the poorest population. And on the top, we have the rest 80% from 50, who are 15 years of age in Brazil at school. So we can see whether the children are within the appropriate grade level. And we can see that 32% of uh, the poorest young people were within their appropriate grade level. Now we have 54.8%, almost 55%. So we've gone up more than 20 um, points, percentage points in 20 years. And so we've reduced this inequality, which was from 31%. To 18, we've reduced the inequality by 41% in relation to this flow indicator. And finally, another data, and, uh, talking with economists, we can't just talk about health. It, uh, it's a, the Bolsa Familia is very cheap. It costs less than half a percentage point. And you have seen the virtuous effects of this program, which can be proved. And one of the studies that we have in this book showed the multiplying effect, the GDP multiplying, the income multiplier effect, and other of them. I can show you one of them. For each dollar that we spend on Bolsa Familia, we get back 1.78 for our economy, which is what the poor um, population uses immediately in products which are produced in Brazil, which has helped our economy to become more dynamic. For those who criticize our social data, I would say that this is a great investment. It should not just be taken as a cost.
In other words, both the family is good for for trade, for industry, for employment. It has become the basis upon which Brazil without extreme poverty has been launched because it has been a great mag uh, magnet, a catalyzing factor so that people would register themselves in the single registration and become within uh, the state's eyes. So Bolsa Familia already had eight years of the Lula government, and it became the basis upon which we built Brazil without extreme poverty. And part of our radar, which is part of our planning system, the map, a map of poverty. When President Dilma arrived, Bolsa Familia was then transformed with Brazil without extreme poverty, it stopped being a fixed program and became um, a factor which varies with poverty. Depending before, the independent of, of the poverty level, it was fixed. But now we can dare go to a variable um, strip where we have been looking at the level of poverty and we have managed to complete this gap. Thinking about that person's employment income and the value of Bolsa Familia, which should have been enough so that no Brazilian can live with less than $1.25 per day. And so Bolsa Familia was then transformed. Every Brazilian who receives less than $1.25 a day receives Bolsa Familia as a complementary benefit. This has had as reference the Millennium Goals. And if we look at the set of impacts of Bolsa Familia, we can see that it's responsible for keeping 36 million people out of extreme poverty. We have seen, we have used this as a variable, but more than 36 million people have left uh, thanks to extreme poverty, but also many other people left extreme poverty through other um, programs, through the minimum salary, through the Brazilian uh, economic growth. These 36 million are those who remained poor and need the help and support of the government. And I would like to show you a simulation so that you can understand what would have happened to Brazil if we had no Bolsa Familia or is stopped right now. Can you hear me well? If you could go a little bit slower. This would have been the map of Brazil if Bolsa Familia did not exist. In the horizontal axis, we can see the distribution of extreme poverty. Uh, you can see the age from the, the age of people from 5 to 70 years of age. And you can see that in Brazil, we'd already had a system for the elderly population we didn't have many old people in extreme poverty. So therefore, extreme poverty was concentrated amongst young people and children up to the age of 15. So what we have here is at the age of 10. If we look at all the Brazilians who are 10 years of age, 
When we started Bolsa Familia, about 13% were uh, in extreme poverty. So we can see that the concentration of extreme poverty was amongst the children mainly. So when Bolsa Familia was created by President Lula, part of the families were reached and it reduced the number of people in extreme poverty, but we can see the greatest impact has been amongst children. When we changed the Bolsa Familia, thanks to Brazil uh, without extreme poverty, extreme poverty falls significantly because we managed to close that gap. And the main result is the reduction of bringing everybody to the same level. The main result of Brazil without extreme mirrors has been to be able to not to have this facet in Brazil's poverty, to have the children being concentrated as within the line of the extreme poverty. So now we have this graph here, and I will show you the results later. But who are these Brazilian? who are still extremely poor after all this effort that we have done, which is these people within this blue line. Those are the people who are still not part of Bolsa Familia. Once they've got Bolsa Familia, they get out of that line. So now we're trying to localize, to find these Brazilians who have the right to Bolsa Familia and are extremely poor, have not managed to be accessed by the state. So we've changed the way the Brazilian government is working. So we have, we, we put a sign saying we have the program, so come and see us. But these Brazilians who are the poorest, the most excluded, who have the most difficulty in accessing, either be through distance, through fear, or because of the history of exclusion, of not being seen by the state, these Brazilians continue to be outside Bolsa Familia. And now we have inverted the way we've worked. And so we, it's our responsibility to get rid of poverty. We want to find these Brazilians. We don't want them to come after the state. We are going after them to find them. So we call this an active search to look for these Brazilians. We reckon there are about 150,000 family who are still outside Bolsa Familia. And we've already managed to find 1,300,000, knowing that they're still around. So these are families who don't, are not documented. They don't have anybody in the families for gen generations who don't have any documentation. And so I will show you some of the ways of locating these families. We go after these families. Uh, buying boats, buying cars, giving them to the local authorities. And quite often in the Amazon, we have this idea that these families are always in the Amazon, but sometimes they're in the centers, in the big cities, and they also need to be found. President Doma always says that this um, that we have managed to finish with poverty in terms of income, which was one of our objectives. We can celebrate this, but we can't be satisfied because this is a still low level. We need to improve the income of these families. And 
each time we move forward, this is just the beginning. We need to move even further. So this is the fact that we celebrate ending extreme poverty within four years of President Dilma's government. The end of extreme poverty, however, it's only the beginning. As I said, Bolsa Familia reorganized the Brazilian agenda. We reorganized this by building a set of policies which can be provided to Brazilian po uh, population. The unified registry is an open door for a number, up to 20 programs, not just for Bolsa Familia, but to a s number of other actions. Brazilian register themselves, and this are some of the programs that we're working with within Brazil, Brazil without the extreme prophecy. And we are hoping to reach Brazilian not just through income actions, but through other policies too. What is the concept of Brazil without extreme poverty. We want a multi-dimensional program. It's not just enough to give them income. As I said, these are those people who are most excluded. Often these people need an effective intervention to break those barriers who prevent them from having a better life. And it's not just laziness. It, they are many of these people, their families, their grandparents were illiterate. They didn't eat well. So they're people who have a deficit in their lives. And so we, it's our duty to improve their lives and to ensure that a number of actions are provided so they're able to break these barriers. Most of them are invisible. So they're able, we are able to have a, a Brazil that grows with low in employment levels where we lack professional and qualified workforce so that we are able to break the intergenerational cycle of poverty. And so we bring in the income, as I've already mentioned, Bosca, um, the uh, Bosa Familia, and also inclusion in terms of productive and economic inclusion. We want to improve their introduction in terms of the economy and also bring more access to public services to these Brazilian, the Brazilian without without extreme poverty plan, I'm going to cite a number of, a couple of actions with which we've been working. Of these actions, we had clear objectives and they were implemented in June 2011 by our president. And today, two months before finishing her first mandate, she was just re-elected now, we can say that we've managed to meet all of our objectives, not just because there were uh, simple objectives. They were very daring and challenging, and we've managed to, met, to meet all of them. I'm going to mention just a couple of them, but their actions which are implemented by a number of different um, uh, departments 
And it's not just my department of social development who deals with this because all others actors and agents have been involved, not just the government, but others of the civil society. And I'm going to start talking about economic inclusion for in relation to our adults, was in, improve their professional training and capacity. And we were hoping to bring uh, courses for professionalizing um, training and we managed to get 1.5 million people registered when our target was a million. And this is because most Brazilians want to improve their life. And this is proof that they're not lazy. We've given them training. And in Brazil, we have a lack of skilled workforce in a number of areas. There is a lack of electricians, of carers, of waiters and cooks. And we are training these people and professionalizing them in various numbers of professions. They are nighttime courses, and it's a huge public. We can't do more because our network, uh, we cannot um, meet the needs of everybody. But we have a number of other actions, uh, developing business uh, people, offering credit. Uh, but I'm not going to go on into them. I'm just going to talk about one example, which is a very interesting example and different, which is our water tanks. Uh, a water tank is a process of storing water using the rainwater, which is well known in Brazil in the world. But in Brazil, the people of the Northeast managed to produce a new technology. We have a very vast area of our country, which is semi-arid. So it rains very little in the last three years, so you can have an idea. We have had no rain in the Northeast. It doesn't always happen. But unfortunately, we went past the worst drought we've had in 50 years. But quite often, we have eight months without rain. And this is a place where you have a rural, isolated population with small properties in a vast area. So you can have an idea. It's four times the size of the UK. So we're talking a very large area. And this population is isolated. So it's, very, it's not viable to take um, water within the grid. But we managed to learn from the local people, from the local um, farmers, using the technology that they invented, which is the idea of um, what Andrew was talking about, using local knowledge. And the people from the area developed a way of building tanks using the local population through bringing them together in their communities. They are called tanks through plates. They make plates and they build these plates and they make a hole in the, in, on the ground so as to collect the rainwater. The size is enough to maintain a whole family to drink water, to have um, do their hygiene ha uh, habits, and to be able to cook. But this has managed to end the worst facet of extreme poverty, which is when people don't even have water to drink. So we managed through 
this methodology to use the local knowledge of the people and their local ever, uh, effort. The government funded this. Each one costs 2,200 uh, reais or 550 pounds. And we have built 1 million tanks in the semi-arid area of the Northeast. This is a huge work. It involves 750,000 uh, uh, um, people for other people who are not so poor. And we have managed to reach almost 27 liters, a billion, billion liters for, of water in the Northeast. During that's only ha we managed to build 700,000 water tanks during the Dilma government in four years. So you can have an idea of what we managed. We've reached four million Brazilians almost who did not have water to drink. They sometimes had to walk four or five um, kilometers a day to fill up a. a a bucket of water and lost their time in terms of work, of education, and of their free time to be able to drink this water. So this is a, a real achievement and one of the examples of the actions that we have been developing in the last period. And finally, I am not going to talk about access to services because I must have gone over my time now, but I would like to comment with you Something regarding methodology, especially with regard to public services, is something I would like to mention, especially to do with health and education, which is something that is very dear to LSC and those who care about public policy. We want to build universal um, policies for education, health, and social assistance. This has and, and remains our objective. But history has shown us that when we only talk about policies being universal, this will happen. But those people who most need it don't have access. So the issue is not only just to target universality, but how to build strategies so that the poorest people, those people who most need, can have, first of all, this access. When we get to 90% of universalization of the access, but who are the people who haven't been reached? Those who are most vulnerable. So now we're working with those that we call hyper-focalization or concentration. And for those who argue for universal policies is to work looking at the most poor people so that they can be included within universal policies. And therefore, there needs to be differentiated strategies. They can't be the same strategy for both those who are richer because those who are more vulnerable are further away, they have less education, they are more difficult to reach. So we have differentiated strategies. Sometimes with names, I want all the name of the children who are still not in preschool so that they can have access to these preschools. What is the name of these people who still not access the electricity grid? 
we can do this so that they can have access to public policies. But I would like to show you the effort that we have gone through. We could use any of indicators because we get similar results. But we decided to go through this methodology, which was organized by the World Bank, to have a multidimensional analysis of the evolution of poverty they're not dealing with the uh, criterion of extreme poverty, but only with poverty. We're looking people who are income poor, not $1.25, but $2.50. And not just looking at people who are poor in terms of income, but in a number of other dimensions. For example, education, if children are at school or not in terms of the education or number of years of schooling for adults, access to sanitation, to water, to electricity, improvement in their housing, and also to some goods and assets. What the World Bank has uh, systemized uh, and has already been published by a number of researchers in the, uh, in the bank to serve as a reference for countries who don't have a way of following up these policies but work within a multidimensional um, policy. They look at these seven items which you have here listed and those who manage to have three of these, uh, a lack of three of these um, indicators, we can show what has been uh, the evolution in Brazil. So if we look at heads of households to see on the right the total of the Brazilian population and on the left we have the 5% poorest of the Brazilian population and we can see that, that there's been a growth for everybody. 41% of households have uh, completed their schooling, but amongst the poorest, this has been a lot higher, over three times that. Now, if we look at children, the indicator is not the best because we've already managed to universalize education for all Brazilians, but our poorest Brazilian managed to go up to almost the same level and school attendance that we have for the rest of the Brazilian population. If we look at electricity now, we can see So we had some poor people who were lacking access in rural area. We had a program called Light for All. So we reached 15 million Brazilians who were living in the Middle Ages without energy. So people and children who could not study at night and people who didn't have generators, they could not reach water. So we had uh, several problems and in this case of this program, we were able to include several Brazilians. In the case of here, we have access to water. We have made steps forward. We increased much more amongst the poorest, who were the ones that did not have access in the next slide access to sanitation. It is an 
indicator we need to improve in Brazil and also inclusive in large cities, it has improved for all Brazilians, but we improved a lot amongst the five poorest. Here we have refrigerators and freezers as well, so the population can buy durable goods. And lastly, cell phones or mobile phones. There's been an increase, but amongst the poorest, it means to have a mobile phone, not just to have access to the system, but to access internet and information in general. Therefore, if we see what has happened in a multidimensional way in terms of poverty in Brazil, we had this behavior here. Poverty in Brazil, analyzing through income, plus the seven factors, the chronic poverty, the World uh, Bank criteria, we had um, decrease from 8.2% to 1.1% in 2014. So it's a much broader um, concept. I'm sorry, I'm lacking time, so I need to finish. Poverty in Brazil was not just the face of children, but it was concentrated amongst the people from the Northeast and black people. If we analyze the regional feature of poverty, we can see that in poverty you have in blue and in, sorry, in red, and then in blue we have the North, the Amazon region, where there was an increase in poverty at that time, but with less population density, and in the northeast, we had the majority of poor people in Brazil. So you can see that it's there in the northeast that we have this decrease of extreme poverty. And this is the face of inequality in Brazil. And this is the face of Brazil, which is much more equal if we analyze the regions. And likewise, in the southeast, it has fallen in all Brazil poverty, but the southeast is the richest region. But if we analyze here this inequality, Brazil now it's a more equal country. And if we see how many times we can say, maybe many more times, if we really look very roughly without looking at inequality, how many more times a region is more unequal than other? But the truth is we had falling poverty in all over the country and amongst black people, the Afro-Brazilian population. This was the level of poverty in the Afro-Brazilian community. So the Afro-Brazilian, 70% of Brazilian people, extremely poor, they were black and Afro-Brazilian community members. And today, they are much more equal. So we're being able to reduce poverty amongst children, regions, and amongst the black and Afro-Brazilian communities. So we are achieving to have a more equal country. And lastly, I just want to mention an important theme. I think we have advanced 
a lot to look at these numbers. We, we almost don't believe that we have reached where we want to go, but we realize that we have a long journey, but it's a possible journey. And I think this is the main learning curve that we had in Brazil, not from each specific policy, because many of our developments They cannot be replicated in other countries or in Africa or in Latin America, but they show us that it's possible to end poverty in the world. We can reduce inequality, and in order to achieve that, we need to very strongly to have a state working on it. So I just want to say a few secrets that we can use to reduce poverty, and the first one, I would say that national states, they should prioritize and lead the process to construct a reduction of poverty and inequality in the world. Without have presidents, prime ministers, and state leaders having that as a priority, we cannot change poverty indicators. We can change a few situations, but we do not change the structural situation and national situation. So this is what President Dilma says. Uh, she's determined to achieve that, to overcome extreme poverty and give, really uh, provide chances and opportunities for also Brazil without extreme poverty had resources and enough resources and many times I receive uh, secretaries of state from other countries and they say but how do you deal with the treasury with the uh, chancellor of exchequer do you have agreements no we don't fight we don't have disagreements it's a priority to eradicate extreme poverty and the only way to achieve that the, the poor must be part of the budget there's no other secret you can have anything else, but if this is not that, nothing is going to happen. Good ideas, good intentions, this is all welcome, but the poor must be at the center of the budget or nothing is going to happen. And the second uh, success is to have a simple design, work with policies that can be scaled up and can be replicated, and the full tip is to have achievable goals and clear goals so we know where we want to get and on many times we want to overcome in the case of our program and also to monitor throughout the period so we can evaluate, correct mistakes, improve um, all the performance and we can have efficiency in these policies for the poor. So in Brazil we have the best IT in order to ensure that poor people can really be out of extreme poverty. So we are going to have a very interesting debate this afternoon about on how Brazil has been creative, how Brazilian society in our NGOs and also charities, how they have been working in Brazil, unions, representation and, and civil society bodies as well. We have a lot to learn from them, but the state cannot be replaced, cannot abdicate of its responsibility towards these policies to overcome poverty. Poor countries and developing countries that have millions of people 
in a in suffering in a situation of poverty without education, without opportunities, they will only overcome and achieve good results and change the economy if the state is determined to do so. So it cannot be replaced by the efforts that the Brazilian society has been putting, and I leave to you not just to the speakers, but in the afternoon we are going to talk about this richness that we have been building in the society in order to help us. Thank you very much, and I apologize that I have gone over time. Thank you very much uh, to Minister. Secretary of State uh, Teresa Campelo for this fascinating uh, exposition and for the lessons that it brings uh, and to the challenges that it brings to our day uh, and to our debate. Uh, to respond to uh, Teresa, we have Professor Armando Barrientos and uh, Dr. Paul Halley, and I'm going to start inviting Professor Barrientos, uh, to give his response. Uh, uh, good morning to, uh, to you all. Um, first, uh, let me um, um, give my thanks to the organizers of the seminar and to Professor Jovkelovich for the opportunity to uh, contribute to the discussions today. Um, uh, it's, um, it's a tough act to follow um, from Secretary of State Campello. And uh, I don't think uh, I'm going to give a response as such uh, to her very com comprehensive uh, presentation. Uh, what um, I, would, I want to do is uh, uh, to tell you uh, a bit at the beginning from, uh, about the uh, program that I'm co-director, which is uh, entitled International Research Initiative on Brazil and Africa. Uh, is a, um, as I will uh, explain, it's a program that is uh, funded by the UK Department for International Development. Uh, and we are interested in to see what um, uh, African governments might be uh, uh, interested to learn from uh, the, the um, recent success of, um, of Brazil. Um, I'm, I'm also going to tell you something about the uh, findings uh, from that program. Uh, and then to touch upon the uh, anti-poverty transfer programs that uh, we've, we've heard uh, from um, Secretary of State Campello. Um, let me tell you about the uh, IRIVA, IRIVA program. Uh, this is a three-year research program established in uh, January 2014. Uh, it is funded by, the, um, by DFID, the UK Government's Department for International Development. Our objective is to uh, try to address two uh, important questions. Uh, the first one, whether there is a Brazilian uh, development model, uh, is, is um, the recent success of Brazil uh, due to uh, a specific um, integrated policies, combination of policies that have been uh, implemented there. And the second uh, part of the, of the second question is to see what lessons uh, um, African countries might be interested to, uh, to learn from uh, the experience of Brazil. Uh, the program is organized into two phases quite neatly. The first phase focuses on the first question and we're at the end of that first phase. And I'm going to um, tell you about some of our, our preliminary findings. And the second phase will start from January and, and there the focus of the research will move to uh, countries in sub-Saharan Africa. 
The, the actual research is done by a network of researchers, yeah, mainly in Brazil, but also colleagues from the UK, the US, uh, Canada, Germany, South Africa, and the World Bank. Uh, this is so far because in the second phase of the project, we hope to engage um, researchers in working on sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and, and then to have, a, 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 as it were, an intercontinental network uh, of researchers. Uh, in terms of the outcomes of our research, they are um, to do with research papers and policy uptake, uh, but also, uh, importantly, to kind of build uh, networks um, uh, across uh, Brazil and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, in the first phase of the project, we um, looked at different topics. I got the list there uh, for you to, uh, to, to look at. They basically, they group into around three, three main kind of areas. The first one is to do with agriculture, because it's of uh, significant interest to uh, uh, countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. Also because, um, um, to an extent, the Brazilian government uh, has, has been involved and engaged with uh, countries in Sub-Saharan Africa in terms of helping them uh, improve their productivity. Then there are another kind of three papers which look at institutions, which uh, we believe are, are, are crucial. Um, and for example, we have uh, something on the PNDS, the Development Bank in Brazil, which is, uh, again, of considerable interest to um, <coughs> policymakers and researchers in, in countries in Africa. And then to look at the institutions that generated the macro stability that Brazil has uh, benefited from. And then we have a, a number of papers looking at uh, social aspects, uh, anti-poverty transfers, um, looking at uh, taxation, which is uh, an amazing story for, for Brazil to have uh, increased uh, the tax-to-GDP ratio to uh, around 34%, which is kind of comparable to uh, w with countries in, um, in uh, uh, in, in Southern Europe. Um, so those are the kind of papers that we have, uh, we have produced. Uh, you can actually see the papers on our website and I got an indication later on where to find them. Uh, if you have only five minutes, you can look at the video. If you've got 10 minutes, you can look at the briefing paper. Uh, and then if you have more time and, and more interest, you can actually look at the papers themselves. Now, the, the, the main uh, organizing uh, finding is this, and, and this is a version of uh, Secretary of State Campello's um, 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 slide in her presentation. The kind of organizing and the most significant issue is uh, inclusive growth. If you, uh, if you organize uh, Brazilians in 2001 from the poorest to the richest, and you divide them into 100 equal groups, and you do, do the same in 2012, and, and look at the income in growth over the period, you find that the income growth for the poorest sections of the population in Brazil has been much, much greater than the income growth for the very rich in Brazil. And it's this inclusive, uh, pro-poor growth that is perhaps the most significant and inter interesting aspect of uh, the, uh, the last uh, uh, 15, 20 years uh, of, of, uh, of Brazil's performance. Now, we, we, we've, we have five uh, findings on this uh, that we can put to you. Uh, the first one, I think, if we want to explain this inclusive growth, is to do with uh, the strong social and political consensus that followed from the Constitution in 1988. Uh, I think that is, that is crucial, and also the focus on uh, tackling and addressing poverty and inequality 
having stable economy and having inclusive growth. That political consensus was essential. The second one is, is that Brazil managed to develop a comprehensive and effective set of institutions to manage the economy, to create the fiscal space to support uh, innovative, innovative social policies. Um, the third one, particularly focused on agriculture, is the combination of different institutions and policies that have enabled Brazil to improve uh, productivity in agriculture to the extent that it is now uh, a global uh, force in, in, in agricultural exports. Uh, one particular aspect of this which is important is the long-term long investment in um, agricultural research uh, through uh, Embrapa. Uh, then um, Secretary of State Campello talked about the, uh, the, the, the combination of labor market policies, the minimum wage, and social policies that have ensured that the benefits from growth have, have been distributed um, across the population in Brazil, and as I said, with the emphasis on the poorest sectors in the population. Uh, of course, uh, if, you, if you look ahead, and, and particularly in the last kind of couple, couple of years or so, there are kind of significant challenges that are still present there. Uh, investment in infrastructure, as anybody who's interested in football and, and was interested in the World Cup would have, would have seen, investment in infrastructure is, is really important. Uh, but also the slowdown in global economic growth is also having an impact on the Brazilian economy and, and how, uh, how that produces uh, or undermines the social contract is one of the issues to look at. Um, now, um, I want to make three points about um, um, anti-poverty transfers. And as, as, uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, to, to a large extent, um, 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 Secretary of State Campello covered this point, so I'm going to move kind of fairly fast on this one. Uh, um, the, the presentation from Secretary of State Campello focused on, on Bolsa Familia because it's the flagship of uh, anti-poverty uh, programs in Brazil. Uh, is, is, the lead, is the leader uh, in, in terms of uh, not, not just setting the orientation of uh, social policy but also driving change uh, and innovation. But it's also important to take into account uh, other efforts that have been made in Brazil over time to generate social and economic inclusion. Uh, for example, the integration of uh, uh, informal workers in agriculture through the Previdencia Social Rural uh, and, and, and also the uh, Beneficio Prestasal Continuada, which provides transfers to uh, families with um, all, the, all the people in poverty and people with uh, disabilities. And as you can see from my graph there, all three of these uh, uh, large, larger scale programs have expanded uh, very rapidly over time. Uh, the uh, broken line reflects the Previdencia Social Rural, the, the red line is the Beneficio Prestasal Continuada, and then the Bolsa Familia, which shows the, 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 the fastest kind of rate uh, of growth from uh, its uh, establishment in 2003. So you have, you have a range of policies there, and for any, any of us, any of you interested in social policy in Brazil, uh, Brazil has an, an enormous richness in terms of the way in which it has tried to address social inclusion. And um, whereas in European countries we talk about uh, Bismarckian countries, uh, Central European and Scandinavian social investment states, and kind of uh, the UK and, and other Anglo-Saxon countries with a more liberal model, uh, Brazil in a way has tried all, all three, and it's very important to learn from them. 
Uh, the second point that I want to make is that the anti-poverty transfers are really focused on inclusive growth. Again, this point has been made by uh, Secretary of State Campello. Um, to also mention this book, which uh, I, I would encourage you to look, to, to look at, uh, is uh, 10 Years of Post of Familia. If you, um, if you don't read Portuguese, the Institute for uh, Policy uh, and, and uh, Inclusive Growth in Brasilia is slowly translating most of the chapters and they are kind of appearing as working papers in, in English, so you can see them there. Uh, the, the important thing first is the impact on human development, which um, uh, Secretary of State Campello already indicated. Uh, you have improvements in child nutrition, in school attendance, uh, you have delayed entry to the labor market by one year, uh, which reduces the informality and the persistence of poverty over generations. But you also have very significant in, in impacts on poverty and inequality. Uh, the, uh, the contribution of uh, social assistance programs to the reduction of poverty and inequality uh, is perhaps not as, as large as the, 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 the impact from improving uh, employment and, 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 of course, uh, pay and earnings. But nonetheless, this has been uh, very significant, particularly in reaching the poorest sections of the population. Uh, I think the, the, um, the, the contribution of anti-poverty transfer programs to inclusive growth has not only to do with the impact on outcomes, but also it has to do with the way in which these outcomes are distributed. And here on this point, our program looked at, for example, the distribution of outcomes from Bolsa Familia across metropolitan uh, municipalities in Brazil and found that the impacts were actually greater in the municipalities that had the poorest outcomes at the start of this process. So the, the impact on inclusive growth works not just in terms of improving the position of the, uh, of the target population, but also generating greater inequality in the way in which these outcomes work. So um, that, that is uh, uh, what I wanted to, uh, to say, and I have a, a few conclusions here. Uh, of course, it's important to start from the 1988 constitution, which led to the emergence of social assistance in Brazil as a means to addressing exclusion. Uh, we have a range of different strategies that have been followed over time, um, and, and uh, uh, many of those uh, policies and programs remain in some form or, or, or other. Um, Anti-poverty transfer programs in Brazil have con in contributed to inclusive growth, uh, not only because they have uh, contributed to improve uh, human capital and human development, but also uh, because they have been complementary to uh, improvements in employment and earnings. Um, and uh, uh, we have been asked to make some comment on the perhaps the issues that the UK a country like the UK could consider in, uh, in looking at Brazil, and I have three uh, that I have there, although, uh, as, as I mentioned, uh, the focus of, of our program is, is, is on African countries, but I, I got three. As a UK taxpayer, I have uh, my chance to actually put these points to you. Uh, the, the first one is, that is the contribution of effective social policies to generate inclusive growth. It's something that perhaps the UK could learn a great deal from that. Uh, the second one is that social investment is necessary and is complementary to an economic growth. It's not a trade-off between social investment and economic growth. But the last one, I think, is the most important and most significant for me. That social contracts are sustained by a concern for the least advantage. And perhaps that is what summarizes 
uh, the Brazilian experience. Uh, many thanks. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Minister, thank you very much. An excellent presentation. Very, very interesting. Ambassador Jaguaribi. Sounded everybody. Thank you very much. I won't go on with the, the, the formalities because I think we haven't got much time. I don't have a presentation. I thought it was... I knew that uh, both the Minister and Ahmana would make excellent presentations full of data, full of, um, full of evidence. And I thought maybe it was useful to just focus a bit on the ideas and tell a bit of a story about, about the relationship between the Brazil and, Brazil and UK and also look a bit to the future and look perhaps both at the state, the relationship between the states, but also look at the civil society and, and how, we've, how we've engaged. Um, I, I'll, I'll also tell a personal story because I worked for DFID in Brazil. I actually worked for the, the government of Brazil. I worked for the Senepic here. I worked in the University of Brazil <laughs> and then started working from the UK government. So I have a, sort of, I have a number of hats as an academic, as a, <laughs> as a former employee in Brazil and, and as an uh, employee of the UK government. So the, the UK relationship in terms of, in terms of DFID and, and, and sort of uh, development cooperation began working on the idea that you know, there was a relationship between poverty and looking after nature. Essentially, the UK in the 1980s and 90s had a strong sort of uh, ambientalista you know, um, uh, uh, focus in Brazil, as did many of the international organizations at the time. And we had this idea that you know, poor people were the stewards of nature, they were the ones that looked after nature, and, and if, you, if you were able to make poor people's lives better, they would look after nature better as well. So we were involved in Mamirawa, the older Hezevich Strativista, this process of creating a law and a legal context for poor people to live in very uh, important natural, uh, natural context, but also live and both prosper. So there was a, a strong relationship, and it was very much focused on this idea that there was these dual objectives of poverty reduction and enhancement of nature. And we had a sort of long a long relationship on that. And in fact, there's an interesting story about the, some of the crofters of Scotland, would you believe it, that went to Brazil and they had an exchange um, in terms of how they were developing their own natural resources and looking at you know, improving the livelihoods of those communities. Quickly, um, that sort of focus on, on natural issues and, 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 and nature essentially shifted to looking at the engagement of social movements and popular movements in policy making. And remember, this is, this is, you know, we're talking 1990s here, um, when the sort of spaces for popular participation in policy making was sort of, was sort of here and there, and, and DFID at that time was very focused on the Northeast. So we worked on a number of programs with the World Bank, with Pinuji and others, and, 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 and in fact UNESCO looking at how social movements and popular movements, particularly unorganized or informal movements, could influence public policy. Um, and, I, and I don't know if you remember, it was the period of HIPIC and debt reduction and there was this big effervescence around poverty reduction strategies and Brazil was sort of, we were sort of taking the, 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 the lessons from Brazil to the rest of Latin America that were under, undergoing debt relief programs. So, I remember we had a number of um, experiences with local communities in Central America and the Caribbean who were undergoing you know, debt, redu debt reduction um, experiences and having to make 
popular programs of poverty reduction. So there was an exchange, exchange there. I must admit, those times were, were, we were working at a sort of mixture of, of levels, a lot on, on, on grassroots movements, but also on those moments where we saw uh, a possibility to work with the state. But they were sort of few and far between. The second thing, and I, and I, was, and I was really interested to see the map of multidimensional poverty there on the screen that we cooperated on, and we had a strong relationship between local government in the UK and social movements and popular movements in Brazil, was on institutional racism and the issue of how do you use popular movements, popular understanding of experience of public policy to improve policy making and public institutions. So we had a program on institutional racism. It was a very live topic in the UK, particularly in local government, in local government institutions. We now know it's sort of common parlance, but in sort of 98, 97, it was, it was, it was quite rare. It wasn't the, it wasn't the, the commonly spoken language. It was, it was a concept that was developing. Interestingly, many of the people that worked on that program in Brazil um, are, now, are now in government. You know, uh, Luisa Bajos and others, you know, they were all together thinking about these things at that time. But the, the, this concept that you couldn't design public policy without understanding the experience of people and individuals and communities of those policies, I think is an interesting one. And it's something that definitely improved public policy making in local government in the UK and is still sort of on the agenda. I think there's still a long way to go, but it's definitely an idea that we, that we shared. Um, and, and then I must admit, I left Brazil. And now I can, and, and, and also DFID's relationship with Brazil changed considerably, and we now, we're now very much, you know, we, we, we don't look at development in Brazil, we look at Brazil's role in the world, and we collaborate on the sort of global stage of, of, of engagement. And I think I, I'm going to say just a few things about some of the lessons that I think are, are sort of very relevant for the UK, and the UK sort of shares with Brazil, and also have global relevance. Well, because obviously I don't lead on UK politics, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I work in international development, so I'm, I'm going to give more of that perspective, but also touch a bit on, on the UK. So, looking at the, looking at the, the, the poverty reduction story, and the agenda social, and the Bolsa Familia, and the other instruments, I think very, I'm very pleased that Armando mentioned the non-contributory pensions, because from a from an international perspective in terms of poverty reduction, it is often the most, the first politically acceptable step to take for many countries because, the, the, because of the, 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 the prejudice often about making transfers. You know, when you give transfers to poor people that are older, that people consider are less able to participate economically, you know, it's more politically acceptable. And... And interestingly, when a lot of the work we do in other countries, when we tell the story of Brazil's progression in terms of the different social policies, and particularly the ability and the openness to test and to see what happens and to monitor, change, adapt, is we start with the story of the non-contribution pensions. Um, it, what Sometimes the story we don't tell quite so loudly is the story about the social movements and the political strife that preceded the social pensions in Brazil. <laughs> because not all governments want to hear that story, but it is an important part that, you know, uh, the, 
the rural workers' movements to secure pensions is a, it was you know it was a big part of why we had non-contributory pensions. Um, but I think you know that 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 trajectory of going to scale, monitoring and developing systems. You know some of those lessons the the minister put up there are exactly the things that we that we think are very relevant and. Uh, I'm I'm a fan of Castro Unico, you know the unique register. You know it's something that it's. I must admit it's still quite hard to sell to other countries. It's quite hard to hard to sell in the UK. Um, in some ways, we are getting we are getting there, but I think those sort of those technologies are, are, are very important. The other thing that that um, that I think is 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 interesting and and. And very relevant is this is this is the way in which the the government of Brazil has made foci- focusing on poverty reduction and success of the agenda social a political a political statement and a political you know flag um, because often in countries that are um, are are weighing up these options of different social social investments they see them as a cost. You know, in reality, they look at their what's the percentage of GDP, and they say, oh, half a percent, you know, two thirds. And the fact that you can point to the possibility of political success and success of government, and also trust in government coming from a focus on poverty reduction, I think, is an interesting one. And it's one that has weight internationally, and it has weight in in lots of countries, and and particularly for countries that are on the border of becoming middle-income country. Um, middle-income country status, like Ghana and like uh, you know countries of a similar s- scale and size, I think it's interesting. Um, and 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 the 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 message around inclusive growth and inclusive growth leading to greater resilience to shocks, um, I think is you know is also an interesting one that we are beginning to see resonate on the international international uh, you know international sphere. I'd just like to say two more things, thinking a bit, now moving to the UK. Um, and obviously, one of, the, one of the concepts that the, the minister put up there of multidimensional poverty and deprivation is, rare, is very relevant to the UK. You know, um, one of the, the sort of very the hard-to-shift poverty we have in, you, you have in rich countries, the insights... Um, into changing that context is very much about multidimensionality. And that is something we, we, we definitely share. And I think the interesting, the interesting thing that I think we do share, and it's interesting, this message about the state. I think I completely agree that you know, the state has a role. It has to have its role. It's, it's, it's duty, and we can't supplement civil society for the state. We often know that shifting multidimensional poverty does need a relationship with civil society and those that understand those dimensions in more detail, in more human detail, and have the relationship with, with those people. And I think the way the Brazilian government has developed or the Brazilian legislature has developed relationship with civil society organizations like OCPs and the way in which they've started to use uh, sort of co-design and co-development and delivery of programs and monitoring of civil society delivery is something that the UK is also testing, thinking about, and can perhaps learn from each other. It's not easy. We, 
I think in the UK we all know the difficulties we've had in this area in terms of, you know, developing effective social programs using, using relationships with civil society and contracting. But I think there is an interesting exchange there that hasn't that hasn't 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 been had. But maybe we can maybe we can think about that. Um, and and interestingly, for example, you know, in the UK we have a lot of one of the big social areas for us is is, is crime and rehabilitation of prisoners and people who have been in prison. We know the sort of models of contracting that have been experimented with instead of just you know, sending people to prison and then putting them on parole and then saying goodbye, but thinking, okay, how can I develop, you know, use the capability of civil society to engage people who come out to prison to give them opportunities to, to train and, and set up financial models so you can finance that, for example, is something the UK can share and I think maybe maybe of interest. So there, I think there is some there are interesting areas there. The, the the last thing I would would like to say is about culture and about um, engagement in cultural activities and sport and such things. One of the things that, that that and it's an interesting it's an interesting story in the sense you know one of the things that the the financial crisis has made is everyone very very worried about how thing how much things cost. Um, and particularly how much services and such things cost. And very quickly, if you do research, you realize there's a lot of, a lot of things that, that we do as, as individuals that have great benefits with quite low cost. And many of those are not just services. They are things we participate in. They're the social relationships they have. They're the culture we share. They're the things, they're the parks we live in, they're the, you know, our environment. And those things have great benefit to individuals, but, but you know, the government is, is, very, is not very good at either thinking about those things, enhancing those benefits, and sometimes takes decisions that destroy those benefits without realizing. And I think one of the things that if you look at the, the Brazil in the UK, if, if I may, is the immense weight of cultural activity. You know, um, I'm personally a capoeirista, so I know about capoeira, but, you know, there are many, many, many... You can list, you know, the number of... You can list the number of cultural activities in the UK undertaken by Brazilians in the UK, by Brazilian organizations, by people that have been to Brazil. You know, this sense that you can generate value through culture and through... Social activity, I think, is very, very strong. And this is something that I think, the, the, I know the UK government across, the, uh, across its social institutions is waking up to, you know, realizing that actually this is, part, this is part of well-being, this is part of delivering benefits to the population. And I think there is something definitely to share there because, you know, um, those things are important in our lives and they make our lives meaningful. And they also help us deal with the multi-dimensions of poverty because we have self-esteem, identity and, uh, and strength to, you know, to, to sort of you know, get over those challenges that we might be faced. So there were a few ideas. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. We have now time uh, to take questions uh, and comments from the audience. I'm going to ask you, please, uh, if, when you ask your question, to introduce yourselves and uh, to try to be brief. Any 
questions or comments? Hmm. Our ambassador has a question, but I'm telling him I will give you a bit more time to see if anything comes from the floor, otherwise I will pass. There we go. <laughs> so, yes, from the... Can you please, Patrick, stand up? And uh, the mic, if you wait for the mic. Thank you. Thank you. My name is... No. No. Cool. My name is Patrick Cunningham. I'm, uh, my organization is Indigenous Peoples Cultural Support Trust. This is a question for the Secretary of State. Um, I'd like to, first of all, congratulate you and Brazil for the amazing progress that you've made over these years. Um, but there is one small sector of Brazilian society which feels uh, sidelined, which feels disempowered, which feels left behind, left out of the progress that you've made, and that's the indigenous communities. Um, your programs are all predicated on the nuclear family, on engagement with uh, the commercial uh, world of Brazil, uh, the indigenous people feel that they have that, that you're imposing um, cultural values that are alien to them uh, on them through the programs and the way that those programs are implemented. Uh, and my question is, uh, have you actually addressed the need to? to differentiate. I mean, Brazil's law, the 88 Constitution, recognises the need for a differentiated treatment for indigenous people. Has that been taken into account? And if so, in what way? Do you want to... Okay, we're going to take one more question and then she will... There was another one there. Uh, and, yeah. and I was just wondering if there'd been a positive effect on crime um, rates as well, if you'd seen a reduction maybe in correlation uh, with the decrease in poverty. No, can you repeat? Because she, she couldn't. Yeah, there was no sound for the translators. So can you re repeat? So we will it's back? Okay. There was a little hiccup in the... Trend. Apologies for that. Okay. okay. Um, so I just want to say the results are amazing from the of the media. And I was wondering if you noticed, uh, in correlation with this reduction in poverty, a decrease uh, in... The no. Yeah. Will I go one more time? Well, if you, if you speak in English, uh, we will translate. So yeah, we'll sure. just translate it um, so while they fix the... Yeah. Okay. Um, I was wondering if there was a connection between the decrease in poverty, or the reduction in poverty and the decrease in the crime rate, if you've noticed yeah. the connection. There's a correlation between the reduction of poverty and the reduction of criminality. If there's a connection, if there's a correlation. There is one more question here. Yes. Can we have the, the mic up here, please? 
let's hope that they are connected again. Uh, hello, my name is Ed Bensi Enchel. Soy, soy Edge. Um, I worked for an organisation called Catholic Communities in Rio de Janeiro. They work with fellow communities on public policy issues. Trabalho com comunidades catalisadoras no Rio, que trabalha com comunidades favoráveis sobre eventos comunitários. So they work with events and community events and communication events. They think that the infrastructure spending in Brazil has been spent in the right way, considering we've had like massive events such as the World Cup and the Olympics coming up, whereas some favela communities don't have access to water or sanitation. So se os grandes eventos como a Copa e as Olimpíadas são corretas quando nas favelas tem como na Copa mal tem o teleférico mas não tem esgoto para a maioria. Sorry, he switched to Portuguese. He's switching between languages. Pegou essa pergunta? Okay. Thank you. Now, Ambassador, would you like to make your question? Okay. We'll, uh, we'll take one more question for the floor before uh, Teresa. There is uh, a hand. I can see a hand up there. Yes. Can you please? Hello. Yes. My name is Ana Carolina. I'm a student at Public Policy University of Bristol. I'm Brazilian, so I will address a question to the minister in Portuguese. I would like to know if given these 10 years of stabilization of Bolsa Family, if there's a perspective in the next Dilma government to be part of the Constitution, apart from being just a governmental program. Thank you. So I think Teresa can start to respond. Okay, so we're going to listen to the minister. So the questions are very different, but I'm going to talk about the World Cup and then I'll talk about the social agenda differently from what has been seen in the media. The government has spent a lot in the World Cup, but people thought we spent in the stadiums, the arenas. They didn't come from public budget or public spending. We have a serious issue in information. Sometimes the population doesn't um, get uh, an efficient and correct information. So the spending in arenas, in the sports arenas, they did not come using the public budget. So when the population questioned the stadiums, they thought we were spending millions of pounds to build the stadiums. We spent billions with the World Cup, but it was with infrastructure, which is also a very uh, great deficit. We had a great deficit in airports, for instance. No one imagines that we are investing so much. We want to overcome poverty, but also we need to continue to invest in the infrastructure in Brazil. And from any economic development, social justice, from any point of view, it, 
it would be wrong by the country if we decided to invest in, uh, in, in great infrastructure, urban areas, infrastructure works after we overcome poverty. We have to do the two things at the same time, simultaneously, and one helps the other, gives support to the other. And one thing that the Brazilian people uh, are proud of is to be able to take an airplane. And this is one of the greatest criticisms that we faced from the population that feel they have been damaged because there's a lot of poor people in airports. So we are very proud to have improved the situation of Brazilian people, giving them access to airports, to airplanes, but we need to improve the infrastructure in airports in order to welcome our tourists to our beautiful and sunny country. I invite you all to come to Brazil, to see Brazil, but also to ensure that inside the country, poor people can also uh, be able to achieve these goals. So we spent in airports, in urban trains as well. Uh, we needed to invest for a long time. So this is a strategic action for the working classes. So we really invested a lot, but I think that it will be considered as a legacy of the World Cup once these tensions um, have decreased because we have an election where all issues have came to the surface and expanded. So we can't say that we only uh, spend in infrastructure and not in reduction of poverty. The second question, I think it's very relevant. We have carried out some studies about criminality. First of all, I would like to say something important. We, I'm very careful in talking about crime and poverty because sometimes it seems that criminality is connected to poverty and poor people. I'm not saying disqualifying a question because I'm sure you didn't want to uh, say something like that, but I'm trying just to, to be clear so we shouldn't associate inequality and poverty because not necessarily they go hand in hand. In some places, reduction, we have uh, numbers for everything, figures for everything. So I have seen several figures showing that in some Brazilian towns, criminality has increased. However, towns that have a, a growth in income, these towns, they also had an increase in criminality. Therefore, I cannot say that we have enough research to be able to correlate these two elements. I think criminality is very complex. Obviously, it's associated in one way of the issue of exclusion, social exclusion. However, they are not directly linked. Yes, that's what we meant. Uh, Marlova is here helping me. And maybe you can have an association with other phenomena like drugs. So drug trafficking, please, Mrs. Marlova. Please, she needs to speak on the microphone. Otherwise, we cannot listen. Mrs. Marlova Norleto from UNESCO in Brazil. UNESCO, 
é trabalhar com criminalidade. We work with criminality and poverty in Brazil, and in Brazil, unfortunately, one of the factors associated with criminality is drug trafficking, and the role of drugs uh, play in the increase of criminality and violence. Therefore, before we can associate and connect poverty, inequality with criminality, we need to discuss this issue in a more complex manner correlated with the way that drug trafficking has occupied favelas in Rio, determining some zones, some areas, exclusion areas, and with extreme violence and criminality. And our research... Um, He has touched upon that and also the role of the police, so our research on the ground sociability. So Brazil in the last few years has developed some programs to fight against violence and prevent violence like PRONACI, which is a program to uh, ensure security and safety for the population. It's a federal program which has played a role to reduce criminality. Also, uh, the pacification uh, police forces in Rio de Janeiro. Therefore, this is a very long debate. I don't want to take the floor, but I, I thought it was very important to mention it. Thank you, Marlova. This, uh, we should have a seminar just for that theme. We are going to, to organize it. It's very difficult uh, to discuss poverty or even more the issue of criminality. Now, talking about our agenda, I think what Patrick has said, it's correct. The indigenous um, peoples, uh, we cannot say exclusively and deal with it just within the poverty agenda. We have been very careful in order not with the poverty agenda to uh, diminish the cultural issue in Brazil. If we talk about specific populations, the indigenous populations, talking about the 200 million Brazilians, They are a small number of people, but they are numerically a large number of people. We believe there's one million indigenous peoples in Brazil. If we are talking about a specific publics amongst indigenous populations, they are the people who concentrate the most, the poorest sections of the population. So 40% of indigenous peoples in Brazil live in extreme poverty. It's a very high number. However, the methods and the ways to create uh, an agenda to overcome poverty amongst indigenous peoples, they are different. We are finalizing a body of research in eight communities, indigenous communities with an anthropology, is an anthropological study with different groups, with anthropologists, because we have a great diversity amongst these populations. There are different people with different cultures um, in the Amazon region, in Rio Grande do Sul, in all Brazilian regions. Some of them are very inserted uh, in civil society, in the consumer society, and others 
are completely isolated. Therefore, we cannot have a single solution to deal with these issues. So we are studying up to what up to what to the what extent Bolsa Familia is interfering negatively in these communities to avoid the Bolsa Familia and the introduction of money, cash, because this is cash. Uh, so the, mo the moment we introduce cash, it can damage the community itself. So for us not to expand access to a disorganizing factor, we are not expanding Bolsa Familia. However, there's the strategic issue, not just for the indigenous peoples. We have taken so many steps forward with national programs in scale and comprehensive the next step is for Brazil to dedicate to programs that are not national. We have to really look at cities. We have been doing that. Um, and we are hiring technical assistance, rural technical assistance for some um, communities in the Amazon. Some communities are not indigenous they are isolated communities. They collect in reserves like Miroa. And we are hiring um, technical assistance for fishermen, for indigenous peoples. But why? Because there's no point in uh, doing something like we want to improve production in these regions, but there's no point in doing that with national programs. So there's no point in getting a technician that understands cattle in order to help uh, an extractivist community. So we are working uh, with these 350,000 people who are being benefited by specific policies uh, of technical assistance. We have 9,000 indigenous people that are being supported in order to improve access to seeds in some cultures that have an agricultural tradition, others don't have it. Therefore, we're trying now in these next steps for us to understand. But we should recognize that we have a debt with the indigenous communities and that that is real. Therefore, we have to make efforts in education, so Marquez is a specialist in that. Therefore, uh, maybe she will help us as well. Just to contribute a little bit with this debate, uh, one of our concerns in Brazil is implementing educational uh, territories, uh, indigenous territories in Brazil. This was part of the first conference uh, in terms of indigenous primary education. We have in Brazil almost 200,000 indigenous studies in primary education who were registered in indigenous schools with over 50% of the teachers who are indigenous, who speak a number of languages. So today we have in education uh, an objective to improve and to build um, to further education. We already have 20 further education institutions who work with a specific teaching, which is an intercultural indigenous uh, uh, teaching education, where we need a lot of effort due to 
uh, its complexity. We have over 200 indigenous languages in Brazil now. Most of them haven't been, has, have no written register. So we have to work to teach indigenous teachers in their own ethnicity to make sure that indigenous schools are in fact built in synchrony, in tune with the development projects of each of these peoples and communities. Finally, the last question is relating to constitutional right. Bolsa Familia is already law since 2003. It's uh, guaranteed in law. It has been growing. We don't want that Brazil, uh, Bolsa Familia will grow much more because it's already universalized. We have now where the population recognizes this as a right, is not a constitutional right. This is perhaps uh, we have reached a point where we can be debating this. But at the moment, people who are outside Bolsa Familia is not because of a lack of law or legislation. It's because of access to information, and we have been working on this. And I would say that this can be a very important and interesting debate in terms of the Constitution, but the people who don't have right at the moment is not because of a lack of laws. It's because of lack of other channels which we're trying to improve and to provide. Well, I would like to thank now the, the opportunity and to say I'm sorry for speaking so much and we have little time to be able to uh, exchange information with you. We have a, a lot of um, documentation to uh, divulge. We have a platform which we built together with the UNPD and the World Bank and our research institute which uh, is called World Without Poverty. We have this platform to disseminate this information so you can go in the site and find other information. And I would like to thank once more the opportunity to be here and wish you a good working uh, time in the afternoon. Thank you.